0: And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, but
1: five, Force 5. Heyo! Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. I am the host, Jason Kleberg, and if this is your first time, Force 5 is the show that forces a guest to come up with a movie-themed top five list, and then we talk about our picks on air. This week's guest is Chicago film critic Eric Childress, and we're going to be talking about our top five John Hughes characters, which was a fantastic topic for a list. Before we get Eric on the line, though, let's talk about some of the things that I've seen this past week. Last week, of course, I had Vinegar Syndrome's Brad Henderson on, and we talked all kinds of Sin releases, and I felt like after that chat, it was time to pop open my July box from... Vinegar Syndrome, and the first one I pulled out was Killer's Delight from 1978. This is Kelly.
0: She made a mistake. This is Linda. She should have known.
1: And this is Annie. She knew. Dark ride. Sergeant Vince DiCarlo is hunting a mysterious serial killer who's kidnapping and murdering young girls in the San Francisco Bay Area. Killer's Delight, aka Sport Killer, aka The Dark Ride, is a story based on the real-life serial killers Ted Bundy, Edmund Kemper, and the Zodiac Killer. We follow DiCarlo, a man torn between his family life and his mistress, as he discovers body after body with zero leads. It's easy pickings for this killer as he picks naive women up in his windowless van like they grow on trees. John Carlin plays the role to perfection in the limited amount of time we actually see him on screen, as the majority of the time the killer is cloaked in shadows like a version of an American giallo film. His method of killing women isn't really shown on screen, but rather through crime scene photos, and it's pretty brutal. He rapes them and snaps their fingers and arms until their bones are popping out, then dumps them in the NorCal wilderness. When two girls are kidnapped at the same time, we finally see a bit of him in action, and it is quite effective. The film is pretty procedural and quite plotting, but I appreciated the police work aspect. Until they actually track down the killer. After nearly catching him at the local swimming pool from which he snags most of his victims, DiCarlo is almost run down by the killer's van. As the viewer, you're wondering how that encounter would lead to a serial killer's downfall. Had DiCarlo pulled some kind of evidence from the close call? Had he finally outsmarted the man? No. He reluctantly heads to a hypnotist and magically remembers the license plate, which he never really saw in that scene to begin with. In a film that felt grounded, this was ludicrous. The final 20 minutes of the film wraps up the cat and mouse game with an ill-laid trap, and the film ends on quite the downer note. The movie looks nice, it's shot quite well, and I'm a sucker for San Francisco period pieces. Being from here, it's always fun to see what the city looked like 50 years ago. The score sounded pretty out of place. It was annoyingly composed of odd xylophone sounds, as if it were snatched straight from its Scooby-Doo episode's cutting room floor. As far as serial killer films go, this one's not bad, but it is a little slow. The first half is a rinse-repeat cycle of cops finding dead women without clues before we really get into the plot. The villain thinks of himself as a real smart chap, but his motives and his behavior prove that he's actually pretty dumb. In fact, I think any killer who was caught before the advances in DNA detection had to have been pretty dumb, but that's a conversation for another day. If you just love movies about serial killers, this one leaves a lot to be desired, but it's okay as a grimy 70s thriller. In typical vinegar syndrome fashion, the picture looks great and the disc is packed with extras including a commentary from the director and several interviews. This week I also saw 1984's Murder Rock. Murder Rock takes place in the ironically named Arts of Living Center in New York City. Inside, a high-profile, choreographed dance troupe develops the best that leotards have to offer, until the dancers start being murdered one by one by a killer who knocks their victims out by using chloroform, and then slowly drives a thin needle into their heart. A gruff detective tries to figure out who's killing the women as MacGuffin after MacGuffin is put in his way. If you can get past the ridiculous premise, Murder Rock is… kind of fun. It's a very tamed Giallo film, especially by uh, Fulci's standards, basically bloodless and with pretty harmless nudity. But the suspense is built pretty well and it's got all the Italian hallmarks you've come to expect. Quick zooms into people's faces, shots of eyes just staring back at you, wonderful use of shadows, an unnamed black hand doing all the dirty deeds, poor dubbing, and elongated shots of people just gasping in different directions. The film's direction is done well, shadows are used masterfully, especially in scenes when the school is about to shut down for the night, as a voice comes over the loudspeaker to let us know that electronic locks will engage in 15 minutes. This triggers a lighting mechanism in which the lights flash on and off. If I were someone who went to the school, I'd find this to be very annoying as you're trying to get your shit together to leave and the lights keep turning on and off. As a Giallo fan, however, it added a neat lighting element to those scenes. The film will keep you guessing, as several people could be the killer based on their proximity to the victims. Unfortunately, there aren't really good motives for these people, so you're hoping that it isn't them, as it would feel a like kind of a cop-out. When we finally find out who's wearing these black gloves, it's not the greatest reason to be out killing young women. If you've seen a handful of these films, you probably have worked out who the killer is by the time they're revealed. But you're not here for the plot. You're here for the dancing. There are plenty of long dancing sequences in Murder Rock, and if I'm being honest, kind of worth the price of admission. It opens and ends with big group dance scenes, and there's a solo dance about 30 minutes in reminiscent of flash dance, that sees a woman practicing a very intense dance number while water is raining down upon her in a skimpy black leotard that will put you in a trance. Even if the whole time you're watching it, you're wondering who's gonna clean up all that fucking water once she's done practicing her routine. As is the case in most 80s Italian films, the English dubbing adds a lot of unintentional comedy, which is weird because I believe it was shot here in America. After the first girl is murdered, one of the male dancers comes into the dance class and expresses how sickening it is that one of the dancers just died and they're just dancing away the next day as if nothing happened. The teacher exclaims, You gotta grit your teeth and dance, even when a friend dies. There are plenty of moments like this which always gave me a chuckle. Murder Rock is a fun, stupid giallo film set in a dance studio. If the mixture of flash dance and the bird with the crystal plumage intrigues you, then call this Slash Dance or Blood and Black Leotards. Come for the mystery, stay for the dance sequences. I've said it before and I'll say it again, watching movies can work up a serious appetite. And when I'm ready to stuff my face full of food, there's only one thing I want to eat, and that's pizza, and there's only one place I want to go, and that's Pizza Planet. Welcome to the Pizza Planet. The peaceful place because it's a nice, cozy place to lean back and relax. The pizzaful place because it's the place to enjoy great pizzas, extra generous with the ingredients you like. Salads, lasagna, ravioli, submarine sandwiches, and our spaghetti and chili dinner we call Spaghetti. Pizzaful and peaceful just means you get great food, your money's worth, and your wits about you all at the same place. Clean your
0: plate, cause the pizza's great at the peaceful place to be. The Pizza Planet.
1: <laughs> spaghetti, spaghetti. Are you fucking kidding me? How much am I getting paid to air this crap? Welcome back to the Force 5 Podcast. There was a surprising lack of John Hughes during the first year of this show, and today's guest, Eric Childress, aims to change that. How's it going, Eric? I'm doing just fine. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm I'm really good. I'm hot. It's like 100 <laughs> degrees here, but I'm good. In addition to writing and talking about movies for over 20 years on all kinds of different sites and mediums, Eric is on the board of the Chicago Film Critics Association, He's the founder and producer of the annual Chicago Critics Film Festival, and now also runs his own podcast called Movie Madness, which you can find everywhere. Uh, Eric, what did I miss? Is there anything else that the, the F5 <laughs> listeners should know about you or uh, your, your film career?
0: Uh, I have a regular television appearance uh, every week on a business show, actually, called Business First AM, and uh, we do a segment called Movies and Money. Uh, I've been doing that since uh, 2013, and uh, do it every Thursday morning at th- at least 5 a.m. in the Chicagoland area, but it's on in, in uh, different uh, locales across the country.
1: Nice. So you're you're pretty much everywhere. We got TV, we got radio, <laughs> we got podcast. You're everywhere. That's great. Obviously, we're talking about John Hughes today, but what are some of your favorite non-Hughes films? Ooh. Uh,
0: well, if you go into all time, and I start going into. kind of the the the, the standard list that i talk about uh my favorite movie of all time is back to the future so that that's where it starts but then movies like uh the right stuff broadcast news aliens uh then just about any of the classic steven spielberg movies that you could talk about e.t raiders jaws uh and the list goes on and on from there
1: you can't go wrong with any of those choices being from the Chicago area, how instrumental were John Hughes films to your love of film overall? I'm sure that was kind of a, a driving force in your picking John Hughes as the topic today.
0: Well, I mean, we we t- talk about John Hughes. You know, I was sort of just a little behind the curve on John Hughes when uh, they his films first started coming out and becoming popularized. Um, I was I was still in grade school when the you know like 16 Candles and Breakfast Club had come out, so catching those movies on cable they were to me they they felt like a primer for the next phase like i'm like oh my god this is what high school is going to be like i don't know if i want to go <laughs> there you know um so that was you know that was that was sort of i i don't know how influential they were i mean they were i said they were primers they were just they gave me sort of a sense of the, the next step into the world that i was eventually going to take and, and they were just comedies to me uh, right. and you know, and they, you know they obviously they still are uh that's why it was such a big it seemed like a big deal at the time when i was i was i was in high school and he finally went back to doing a movie about uh kids you know, they were supposed to be 21 in the film but it felt like they were teenagers when he did career opportunities so that was such a kind of a a big moment. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to go see a John Hughes movie. And I'm now the age that all those other movies, you know, were sort of aimed at, uh, and that movie, you know, it's, it's problematic. I have some fondness for it now, obviously, but, um, but yeah, so that was, that was, yes. I don't know how influential he was, but I still enjoy them. Many of them very much.
1: That's kind of how I feel as well. And uh, you mentioned Career Opportunities. If you pick up the Blu-ray right now of Career Opportunities, Eric, you did the uh, the commentary track for that film, which is how I became aware of your uh, of your name. So that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that was a fun little... The way that sort of came about was kind of funny, too, because on the, the, my podcast that you mentioned, we, biannually, myself and Sergio Mims, who is... He's like king commentary right now, as far as I'm concerned. He does a lot of commentaries on Kino and other releases and stuff like that. Uh, he, uh, we we do a show every year, a biannual show twice a year called um, "Why Is This Not on Blu-ray?" Uh, and we choose titles that are just not available on Blu-ray and titles that we either can't believe or we really want to see on Blu-ray. And out of just out of the blue, I just I picked career opportunities, and it's not even like a film that I. You know, really love or cherish in any way, but it was just like, I I have some fondness for this movie, and I can't believe that of everything that in the Hughes, you know, world that this was still kind of languishing out there. Uh, And (laughs) then it was like a couple weeks later that Kino actually asked Sergio to do the commentary if he wanted to do the commentary for career opportunities. And he's like, I don't think I have anything to say about this movie, but. I know someone who might and he he, t- he introduced me to the people over there and they're just like, yeah, could you turn this out for us in a couple of weeks? And I'm like, uh, OK. So, yeah. So I did my research and painstakingly went through that uh, thing frame by frame pretty much and all 78 glorious minutes of it uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, tried to do the uh, 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 best I could with it.
1: That's really cool. That's really cool. Next time we have you on, we'll have to do top five movies that aren't on Blu-ray yet. <laughs> yeah. All right, my friend. Let's get to the list.
0: You know what's gonna happen? You know, you know what's happening to you right now? you know what's gonna happen? No no no, 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 no. Words.
1: You just made the
0: list. Mm. Top, five, top five.
1: Top five. John Hughes characters is what we're tackling today. I didn't order my list in any way. These are just five characters that I think are really memorable in one way or another. Do you have yours in any specific order, or do you just have five that you kind of uh, like?
0: I did. Well, I, I I came up with five, and then I did end up ranking them. Um, and it's just, yeah, I mean, they're I mean, these can be obviously argued uh, to death, pretty much. But uh, I, I think that the thing with John Hughes characters is that you know, you can you can certainly I think you can pinpoint some of the ones that are the more most well written, the the funniest, the most interesting. But I think anyone who goes through the John Hughes world, also depending on what age they are, that you um you you sort of respond to them in a certain way as how well they relate to you personally. So there's actually a couple on my list that I think are probably the most like me or the most the most I've I've sort of identified with uh then I have three others that I just think are maybe the 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 best characters that he's come up with
1: cool well Eric let's get to the list here uh who's number five on your list of top five John Hughes characters
0: uh yeah number five on my list is actually the one character that I think probably uh best represented me (laughs) um even pre-high school but certainly in high school uh and that's uh, Brian Johnson and The Breakfast Club.
1: What is going to happen to us on Monday
0: when we're all together again? I mean, I consider you guys my friends. I'm not wrong, am I? No. So, so on Monday, what happens?
1: Are we still friends, you mean? For friends now, that is? Yeah. Do you want the truth?
0: Yeah, I want the truth. Anthony Michael Hall's character, uh, the brain, so to speak. Not that that was my <laughs> <laughs> my affiliation, but the w- the way that that character is. I mean, he's sort of the the, the geeky, nerdy outsider, the, the smart guy in the group that you know probably only has his select group of friends. He certainly doesn't hang out with any of those characters in the movie, which is you know obviously the point of it. Uh, but just the the way I mean because you consider. Anthony Michael Hall in Sixteen Candles you know, was the geek, and that was his name. I mean, he, he <laughs> you know, it was Farmer Ted, but uh, his name was the geek he was referred to in that movie. And that was sort of the broad characterization of that particular type of person in high school, grade school, or whatever. It was played very broadly. It was played for mostly laughs all the way. Brian Johnson feels like the more grounded version of that character. That he's kind of reserved, but he's also he's trying to fit in, try to be, you know, humorous where, where he can be. Um, obviously, he's the smartest guy in the room, but doesn't really show it because it's almost, it's almost like a level of not embarrassment, but it's just like he, he's not proud of who he is, yeah. you know. And he, but and he's obviously had to work very hard for what he is. That's why that that lamp story is so kind of humanizing and pathetic at the same time. Um, yeah, so I never, I mean, I didn't, you know, follow in that character's footsteps. And I certainly, I played sports audience. So, I mean, I was, I, I, <laughs> but, I but if I had to choose between Andrew and Brian in, in The Breakfast Club, Brian Johnson was certainly uh, more representative of me at the time. So I, I chose him as my number five.
1: It's a great character. And uh, one of the things that struck me last time I watched The Breakfast Club was, how the reason he was suspended or sent to detention differs from how that would show up today like uh, obviously i don't want to spoil it for anybody who hasn't seen the breakfast club but the reason he gets suspended is one that today would get you like expelled from school completely oh yeah <laughs> maybe even tossed in jail mm-hmm. so that that was one thing that stuck out to me i considered all kinds of people from the breakfast club he's definitely the one that i that I um, would consider myself closest to as well, but I didn't end up picking anybody from The Breakfast Club, so I'm glad that it made it onto this list with you. Mm-hmm. My number five is from John Hughes, not well, his first movie that was received well, and it's a character from 1983's Mr. Mom, and it's actually the wife named Carolyn Butler, played by Terry Garr. Well, you're mad, aren't you? I'm not mad. I'm not mad. It's just not where I want to be right now. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Jack, I can't not go. I mean, please do it for me, would you? You know how many of these things I went to for you? A lot. We'll stay 10 minutes. 10 minutes. 10 minutes? (sighs) 15 tops. Oh, all right. Okay, fair enough. But if we stay longer than that, we pull the old Aunt Emily.
0: Okay, the Aunt Emily, right.
1: So the story of Mr. Mom is that Jack, who's played by Michael Keaton, he's laid off from this auto engineering job, and Carolyn starts working at an ad agency to pay the bills, and it's supposed to be this temporary thing. Well, he finds a job, and she ends up becoming really successful. And it's a really good portrait of a driven, strong female character who excels at her job, even while battling what we now consider, like, very toxic male-driven work culture including major sexual harassment stuff and i'm even more impressed with carolyn when you realize that her husband is completely idiotic the man can I, I don't understand how he was an auto engineer but couldn't manage to like make his way through a grocery store or perform basic chores. So you have to think that even while he was working, she was basically caring for the two kids and him. Now, this is a role that obviously best serves as a time capsule, because back when it was made, the whole thing is like, oh my god, there's a woman that's working and supporting the family. And that's more like a, a, a little bit more traditional now, where that happens, or both parents work. And it's just a different time, obviously. But She's a really great, strong female character. I really like that about this person. She also reminded me of my mom when I was growing up, just being that well, my mom was a single mom. But it was it reminded me of my mom. And I think that's why I connect to this character, Carolyn Butler. So that's my number five. It,
0: that's really such an inspired choice, actually. And I'm glad that that you brought up, Mr. Mom, because that because the character of Jack Butler uh, remind was my dad. At the time, not that he was the bumbling thing, which is probably why I didn't pick him for the <laughs> list. But there was a, the period there where my dad had been laid off from his job because of surgery that he had had. Uh, that's a whole other story for another podcast. But uh, so he was he was Mr. Mom. So we actually right at the time that movie came out, he be, he was Mr. Mom. So when we went and saw that movie as a family, we were you know just beside ourselves because it was just it was. So kind of hit the nail on the head, uh, and, I, and I and I adore Michael Keaton too. And my and my dad's name was Jack, so, uh, so it was all just kind of like the perfect storm of comedy there. And uh, and I, I still love that movie to this day.
1: I do too. It's it's I think it's underrated when it comes to John Hughes movies, and Michael Keaton is fantastic as that bumbling dad trying to figure out how to like do laundry and mm-hmm. deal with housewives and watch soap operas. Yes. Uh, Number four for you.
0: Uh, Number four for me is another one that's a little more closer to uh, home, a little more personal. um, And that's uh, Keith Nelson in Some Kind of Wonderful.
1: You withdrew the college money, didn't you? Yeah. Well, it's going back, pal. Every last cent of it's going back. You don't get this close to something and piss it away. It's not going back because I don't have it. I spent it. Would you buy a, a car? Whatever you bought, you can take back, and you're gonna take it back. Dad, I can't. I I don't want to. I don't care what you want. The money's going back in the bank, and that's final. Look, you're not listening to me. I don't have the money. I can't get it back. Look, you had no right touching that money. I had every right. I earned it. Where's the fucking money, Keith?
0: Dad, calm down. Listen to me. The money is not important here. You don't know what's important. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. I do know what the hell I'm talking about. You just never listen to me. You only hear what you want. Will you listen to me for once? This was was a bit more like like if Brian Johnson was me in freshman and sophomore year, Keith Nelson was me in junior and senior year. Um, he was a little more, uh, a lot more cynical. He was a little more uh, hardened a bit, uh, you know. But he still had a this dream of you know taking out this uh, girl, Amanda Jones, played by Leah Thompson, uh, and. You know, he was working a job. He, You know, he had a, dreams of being an artist and all these kind of things. Uh, certainly didn't have the clashes with my dad the way he does in that movie. But uh, there, there's something like Some Kind of Wonderful, I think, is the one of the more underrated John Hughes movies in general. He didn't direct the film. He just wrote it. And I always felt that Some Kind of Wonderful was the the better and almost the, the apology for things that he had done in Pretty and Pink. Oh, yeah. And, and also, I mean, Pretty and Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful in general was, you know, his his way, you know, because all the movies before then, for the most part, all of his characters, even the ones we were rooting for, were very upper middle class. And the yeah. characters in Pretty and Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful were not. They were they were people that, you know, that were doing okay, but they, you know, they had to, you know, he had to work in high school. He had to work, work for a living to get where he was going. And, you know, I never... Don't think I would have ever blown as much my entire college money out of a <laughs> pair of earrings, but there's there's a real truth to that character, and I and I think Stoltz plays him really uh, really wonderfully, no pun intended. Uh, so yeah, Keith, Keith Nelson really really kind of struck a nerve when I saw. I mean, I like the movie. I mean, again, I was in grade school when that movie came out, but after having gone through the experience of high school and re, you know revisiting that movie again, I was like, yeah. That's yeah he they, he got that character.
1: this is another one that I'm really glad you brought up because literally up until probably thirty minutes ago, my number five was Watts from the same movie who plays that's um Mary Stuart Masterson who is Keith's best friend, this tomboy Watts so I'm glad that you brought this up. It was also the same director of Pretty and Pink, so I right. think it was both of their attempt to like rectify <laughs> how problematic that movie is mm-hmm. good choice my number four is uh, a John Hughes character who popped up in multiple films, the ultimate 80s family man, Clark W. Griswold. <laughs> uh, hey! If any of you are looking for any last-minute gift ideas for me, I have one. I like Frank Shirley, my boss, right here tonight. I want him brought from his happy holiday slumber over there in Melody Lane with all the other rich people, and I want him brought right here! Funny performance. He's a flirty husband who is constantly trying to impress his family and is always looking for adventures. Meaning, he's going to take them out on those big, grand family vacations. And these vacations might not always go as planned. He's constantly trying to do nice things for the Griswold troop, including uh, we see a vacation to Wally World in 1983's vacation. We see them go across the pond to Europe. We see them have a big Christmas gathering at their house. And, of course, he takes them to Las Vegas for one of the weaker entries in the Vacation series. Clark Griswold is not perfect. We see him try to keep his cool in these bad situations. But across the four Vacation films, when things don't go his way, this man has temper tantrums. He blows his stack. But it's all really, really funny. And it's relatable now. As as a father myself, Like you have those moments where... You just want things to go right, and they're not going right, and and it feels like all that frustration is just building up. And uh, I, another admirable thing I think about about Clark Griswold is that when it comes to those, even in his extended family, he's always trying to look out for those people, as annoying or as crazy as they might be. In the, like the case of Uncle Eddie, for example, uh, you know he's still looking out for Uncle Eddie's kids. And Christmas Vacation is a perfect example of that, when he is very stressed and he's staying up at night because he knows that Eddie probably doesn't have any gifts for his kids. And and I always thought that was really admirable of Clark Griswold. So, yeah, across four movies, he's a character that I just couldn't let slip off this list.
0: Yeah, I don't think this is the last time we're going to be hearing from Bob Clark Griswold tonight. So, just... (laughs)
1: Nice. Yeah. Then we'll save, uh, we'll save that for later. Mm -hmm. Uh, what is your number three?
0: Uh, my number three, you know, I was trying to go through the entire Hughes canon and come up with the one, uh, like the best female character that he concocted. And I think it might be, you know, Terry Gard notwithstanding, obviously, but as far as from the teenage realm, um, I think Molly Ringwald, Samantha Baker from 16 candles,
1: I look exactly the same as I have since summer.
0: Utterly forgettable. No, I didn't expect to wake up transformed.
1: I just thought that turning 16 would be so major that I'd wake up with an improved mental state that would show on my face. All it shows, I don't have any sort of a tan left. <sighs> I better get downstairs. My family's probably pissed off I haven't let them wish me happy birthday yet.
0: Is probably the, the best one, because I think that... Uh, you know, the, you, there are a lot of things you can say about s- s- the female characters in uh, his other movies. I mean, you mentioned Watts, uh, but at some point, you know, there's also there's you know an archetype to that character, yeah. you know, and we sort of saw that in reverse uh, at, from Pretty in Pink and whatnot. Uh, but I think Samantha Baker, uh, class structure notwithstanding, uh, she was the one that I think you know, it was the best sort of representation of the thing that John Hughes was trying to go for in a lot of those early movies with the, the you know, the, the angst and whatnot. And she, you know, her turning 16 and everyone forgetting her birthday, it was like this rite of passage where like everyone just, where she stopped becoming a focal point. You know, it was like, it was a moment where she has to realize is that she's, she might be on her own. You know, she has the crush, you know, she has the crush on the guy who, you know, secretly, you know, she thinks doesn't know uh, that she exists, even though he's got her eye on her for the entire movie, uh, (laughs) which is convenient. But, you know, there there are moments throughout the movie, like even like the the, the, the big dance scene, which is played for laughs and the geek comes out and he's doing his all his dance in front of her or whatnot. She runs off crying. Yeah. You know, there's, it's, it's this so there are moments like that throughout the film, uh, and you know she has like a really great talk with her, her dad late in the movie, uh, and so I, I think that that character more than anything uh, is is the most interesting female character that he's that he wrote through his entire uh, career, certainly at the at least of the teenage realm.
1: Yeah, this is one that, uh, you know, if, you, if you've if you never seen 16 Candles before and you watch it now, it's going to seem very dated, especially with a lot of the jokes that play out. But the character, uh, Samantha, is still a, it's a really well-written character. And I can relate to a lot of the things she was going through as a 16-year-old when I was 16. I, I can definitely relate to that. And this she gets to spout some really great dialogue in this movie, too, which is mm-hmm. another high point. My number three... All right, I gotta I gotta go with a villain on this one. My number three is Chet from Weird Science. <laughs> this is uh, the older brother. He's a villain played by Bill Paxton, and it is so it, he's so good in this role. Uh, if you've never seen Weird Science, Chet's little brother Wyatt and Wyatt's friend Gary, played by Anthony Michael Hall, have created the perfect woman using a doll, a computer, and an insane leap of logic. But she's She's perfect. She's played by Kelly LeBrock. She's great in this. She almost made my list too. Hmm. Chet knows something's up and he's just he's all about tormenting his little brother and his little brother's friend. He's the typical 80s older brother, like the bad guy, but the performance by Paxton is just so good. He's only on he's on screen a very short time, but he makes the most of that time. A couple of classic Chet, Chet moments that stick out to me him smoking a cigar in the house, and then blowing the smoke into the face of Gary, who is very drunk, and he's trying to get him to puke. And he he sees like Gary starting to get queasy, and he says, How about a nice greasy pork sandwich served in a dirty ashtray? He pukes, you die just, like, trying to make him hurl. And then uh, another classic moment, he barges into his brother's room. There's a giant bomb in the room, and he's Gary's sleeping in the room, and he wakes him up by pointing a shotgun at his face, and he's, like, hitting him on the head with the shotgun and doing the same to the girl. Of course, Gary learns his lesson by the end of the film with some help from, from Lisa, the uh, the woman that they created. But... Such a memorable role for Bill Paxton, and uh, I I just love the character of Chet. He's the ultimate nightmarish big brother.
0: Yeah, and there are people who will listen to this later and be shocked that I didn't put Chet on my list, and (laughs) uh, because of the, I'm such a gigantic Bill Paxton fan that, uh, I mean, the the man could do anything. As far as I'm concerned, I, I loved him so much, and the reason I didn't put Chet on the list is because I was trying to focus on Hughes's involvement with the character and writing the character. I give all the credit in the world to Bill Paxton for oh, yeah. the creation of Chet. I mean, Chet on the page was probably just an annoying, a really annoying older brother. You know, Paxton took it to a completely different level. And that line that you mentioned about the the greasy ashtray that's actually a line that his father, if I if I remember the story right, his father used to say to him um, <laughs> at, at times to try to get him, you know, to, to mess with him a bit. That was a story he told on a talk show years ago. But if I remember, I think it was his father. I don't think it was an older brother. I'm pretty sure it was his father uh, that would mess with him in that respect. Uh, but no, Bill, Bill Paxton forever. Uh, okay, my number two. Uh, is a character that uh, very, uh, maybe I'd have to go back through my entire memory bank to think of a movie that made me tear up as early as this character did as early in the movie, and then by the end of it, completely had me, and still has me to this day, uh, and that's Del Griffith in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Yeah, you're right. I talk too much. I also listen too much. I could be a cold-hearted cynic like you. But I don't like to hurt people's feelings. Well, you think what you want about me. I'm not changing. I like I like me. My wife likes me. My customers like me. Cuz I'm the real article. What you see is what you get. John Candy, I mean that this character again, it's it, it's it in some ways it, it i mean it feels like a stereotype the annoying traveler the guy that you can't get to shut up on the plane the guy that won't leave you alone just talk 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 chatty kathy doll you know pull the string and yeah. uh but that confrontation in the hotel room when steve martin's neil page blows up at him and candy he's listening he's intently listening and you can tell that it's affecting him in some way and then he kind of lowers his head, and it's it's that he just lowers his head, and he realizes that it's really hurting him. And then he gives that little little monologue in the hotel room. And I'm just like, adults feel this way too. It's not just teenagers that have moments of sensitivity and feel mo- moments of pain uh, when people pick on them or bully them or whatever. That, that th- These are traits that we can carry into our adult selves. And that's what you're kind of seeing there. If if Neil and Del were in high school, they would be like any other bully and fat kid, you know? Uh, So like that, I mean, so like Del Griffith you know, is a just a a symbol of loneliness and someone who's trying to, you know, whether his insecurities make him talk as much as he does, or it's just a, 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 a neediness to connect with people, uh, considering he has nobody else in his life, and he he's homeless, basically. Uh, you know, and there, there are so many movies that couldn't pull off that dramatic shift so late in the movie, and it would feel forced, it might feel like over, overly schmaltzy and stuff, but that entire scene where... Neil has the realization of what, of all the clues that he's been dropping throughout the film. And he goes back and sees him still sitting there and he tells him about his wife and he doesn't have a home. Uh, And then you have that iconic shot of the two of them carrying the trunk towards Neil's home. And Dell is being given a new family and there's a shot of him holding his hat And he only has one glove on. And now he's going to be more complete. With this family in his life. And yeah that movie. play Changes and Automobiles is my favorite John Hughes movie. In any writing directing any incarnation. And uh, yeah. So like I think it's hysterically funny. And you know a movie that can be that hysterically funny. And make me cry by the end of it. Is a really special thing. And John Candy should have been nominated. For that movie, as far as I'm concerned,
1: John Candy was amazing. Uh, Hughes used a lot of the same actors a lot of times, mm-hmm. and I, we probably could have done like just a top five list of John Candy roles in his film, yeah. Uh, like even the he's his traveling polka band from Home Alone, <laughs> even that character <laughs> could have made it. John Candy was so good, and that's a perfect lead into my number two which is also played by John Candy, the titular Uncle Buck. Mm. Uncle Buck is is my favorite John Candy role in any of the Hughes films. He's a good-natured bachelor, but at first glance, he, he's not the kind of person that you'd think should be watching your kids. Of course, the plot of the movie is that uh, the Russells, Bob and Cindy, uh, Cindy... Her dad has a heart attack, so both of them need to travel to Indianapolis, and they ask Uncle Buck, who's Bob's brother, to watch their three kids, with whom he virtually has no relationship with, so they wake up and Uncle Buck is there. And uh, you learn all you need to know about Uncle Buck in the very first scene with Macaulay Culkin, a young Macaulay Culkin, which is just a fantastic scene where Macaulay Culkin's character is just grilling him and asking him questions, and there's such a fun back and forth there. Where do you live? In the city. Do you have a house? Apartment. On a rent? Rent.
0: What do you do for a living? Lots of things. Where's your office? I don't have one. How come? I don't need one. Where's your wife? Don't have one. How come? It's a long story. Do you have kids? No, I don't. I'll come. It's an even longer story. Are you my dad's brother? What's your record for consecutive questions asked? 38. I'm your dad's brother, all right. You have much more hair than your nose than my dad. How nice of you to notice.
1: As he starts taking care of these kids, it, it looks like it's going to be this real fish-out-of-water story of a guy who just doesn't know. He doesn't know how to use a washing machine. He's microwaving socks to, to warm them up, and it ends up turning into a really heart-filled story about a guy who... You know, he, he hasn't had a relationship with these kids, but he genuinely cares for them. And uh, how that relationships how those relationships grow over the course of a very short amount of time. Candy's comedic timing is amazing in this. Uh, there's two scenes that, well, two strands that, that stand out. The eldest daughter has this very weird boyfriend named Bug. And he's constantly, he's got a constant back and forth going with Bug. And the dialogues are, just, are so great. Uh, he pulls up in his really, really crappy station wagon. It's blowing smoke everywhere the first time we meet Bug. And he leans in the car and he says, you ever heard of a tune-up? And Candy fires right back. You ever heard of a ritual sacrifice? <laughs> and It's just, it's such a good line. And that never stops. And then there's the, uh, the middle child. Uh, Her name's escaping me right now, but she's getting into some trouble at school. And this monologue from Uncle Buck has always stuck with me when he goes to the principal. And the principal's basically saying this girl is is not focused on her career as a student. She's dreaming too much. And he's like, she's a kid. She needs to dream. And he (laughs) essentially threatens her while this other kid is sitting outside the class or the, the room just like, giddy that somebody's finally given it back to this assistant principal. It's just a classic scene, but uncle Buck, I couldn't leave this character off the list. He's just so good to me. Yeah. I can't
0: tell you how many times someone in my inner circle has said something to the effect of, why don't you go downtown and have a rat and all that thing off your face. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Uncle Buck's a very a, a slightly dark character. That's just, it's, it's, there's some real darkness around him um i mean he doesn't he's aloof but he doesn't put up with anyone's bs you know Uh, particularly the older (laughs) child (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh yeah so in in case you haven't guessed by now my number one is actually clark griswold i was afraid you'd get pulled over clark you've been exceeding the speed limit for
1: thousands of miles dad wasn't speeding the cop stopped us because dad forgot to he was speeding rusty no, it wasn't,
0: Mom. Russ, listen to your mother. I was speeding. I was driving like a maniac. We can all be grateful to this man for stopping us. You see, kids,
1: a car. Here's the lead, sir. I'm going back to get the rest of the carcass off the road. Thank you, officer.
0: Not, not only because I, I just I think he, you know, John Hughes, like sort of, you know, most infamous piece that he wrote for the National Lampoon was the the story of vacation which is was the impetus for the the, the first movie uh, and in his in in the story his, his name is Clark W Griswold jr. and you know it but this, and this was a character that Hughes got to evolve a bit over time there I mean there's certainly there are similar comic, circumstances in all three movies and particularly in the, the first and the third movie. But like, I, I mean, as much as I love Las Vegas, Vegas vacation is the one that I like the least. So I tend yeah. to almost kind of forget about that one uh, a, a bit, but cause I think that the way that he evolves that character into Christmas vacation, that, you know, twice, you know, he tried to take his family on vacation and it, it went, horribly wrong. And so the third time it's just going to be, you know, at home and I'm going to do Christmas right. I'm going to do Christmas Clark Griswold style and just make it the biggest possible thing for his family. You know, it's not so much it's not him feeding his ego so much. He really wants to do this for his family. And when things go wrong, he, you know, he turns on people. Uh, But, you know, who among us haven't? And, you know, so like when you, you mentioned earlier how uh, that he looks out for the people around him. And you never see that even in, better than in, in Christmas Vacation, which is actually my favorite of the three movies. Uh, the, Mine too. For, yeah. And so like when he, when he has that scene with uh, Cousin Eddie in the supermarket and he says, you know, we want to give your kids a good Christmas. I mean, that's, that whole scene to me is, I think, is absolutely beautiful. And then at the end of the movie when he, you know, he just gets to look up and he goes, I did it. You 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 I mean I always I, I, I get a little teary eyed when I watch that watch that movie now and I and I never thought that I'd get teary eyed watching a, a Chevy Chase movie but there's something really and again it, it's a little bit personal to to me because Clark reminded you know his, Griswold's uh, Clark's um, uh, commitment to his family reminded me of my dad. And we we took road trips. We did Christmas vacation. I I I've never laughed harder in a trailer, uh, <laughs> in a movie theater <laughs> than the moment in the Christmas vacation trailer where he pulls out the Christmas lights. I'm like, oh, we got a little knot here. You work on that. That was every Christmas <laughs> for me. That was every Christmas for me. Uh, and so, like the, all those all those moments uh, throughout throughout the series, just really always just stru- stru- uh, struck something in me. Uh, I think it's some of Chevy's best work. uh, And I just, I just, I just love the evolution of, of that character. And it uh, makes me laugh every single time.
1: As somebody who has loved that movie for years, it's funny how you relate differently as you get older. At first it's just really funny stuff, but then I got older, I I married into a much bigger family and we have these big gatherings that Mm -hmm. sometimes end up at my house and, and I very much feel like Clark W. Griswold sometimes when you're trying to <laughs> impress every everybody, but things aren't going the way they're supposed to go. Yeah. Oh man. Just a great, a great character and a great a great set of movies. I'm with you. I think Vegas Vacation is the the worst out of the bunch, but Christmas Vacation is by far my favorite. Yep. My number one is what I think is John Hughes' best villain of all time. And when I first watched this movie, I didn't pick up on how villainous this person was. But as you get older, you get more mature. You realize that Ferris Bueller (laughs) is in and I'm going to use Matthew Broderick's own words from an interview that he had. Ferris Bueller is a manipulating, shifty, dishonest liar. And his long suffering sister was completely justified in trying to bust his preppy ass. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? This is my ninth sick day this semester. It's getting pretty tough coming up with new illnesses. If I go for 10, I'm probably gonna have to barf up a lung. So I better make this one count. The key to faking out the parents is the clammy hands. It's a good non-specific symptom. I'm a big believer in it. A lot of people will tell you that a good phony fever is a deadlock, but uh, you get a nervous mother, you could wind up in a doctor's office. That's worse than school. You fake a stomach cramp, and when you're bent over, moaning and wailing, you lick your palms. It's a little childish and stupid, but then so is high school. Ferris Bueller is very smart, He's very charming, as many movie sociopaths are. But if you watch this with the lens of him being a villain, it's as captivating as if you're just watching it as a straight-up comedy. The characters and and the actors who play them in this movie really, really push the film forward. Broderick's perfect as Bueller. Because the, the plot, if you think about the plot, it's very light. Ferris wants to stay home from school, and he bullies his best friend and girlfriend into going with him. Well, the principal of the school tries to bust him for it. He spouts really funny one-liners, he gets to sing in a parade, he's breaking the fourth wall talking directly to the audience, and he's doing it all well in his best friend's dad's Ferrari, which they took out without permission, and there's some good payoffs to that. Now, when you think about it, the the last act of this movie, they try to rationalize the behavior of Ferris Bueller in him basically saying, well, I was trying to push Cameron towards having a good day. I was trying to push Cameron to conquer his fears. I was trying to push Cameron to, to push back against his father. It's a BS rationalization. It's weak. It's simple sociopath Ferris Bueller trying to redeem this character. And, and as much as the movie tries to make you root for him, I invite you to watch this with the lens of, Ferris is the villain, and it just takes on a whole new context.
0: It it's such a great point. I feel that we could have done this entire show just talking about Ferris Bueller and what that character represents and how as we have grown older take different views on what that character was. I still remember uh back in the days when you had to like just actually order pay-per-view with a little remote control on <laughs> your yep. cable system back in the 80s. And Ferris Bueller's Day Off premiered on the, the pay-per-view service. It was one of those things where, like, it would premiere and it would play for, like, a week and it would play a certain time. So, you, you, like, you couldn't just – it wasn't like today. You just call it up and bam, there it is. You had to wait till 7 o'clock for it to play after you ordered it and blah, blah. Anyway, uh, that week, for whatever reason, the, the cable company – I didn't order it, but they left it on. <laughs> okay and i watched ferris bueller's day off every day that week and i loved it and but i was 11 years old and yeah. to me watching that movie was all about hey look at this really smart kid with all these toys pull one over and get to get to be uh, have the day off from school which is what i wanted every single day so when i'm 11 you know ferris bueller is the 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 hero in a way he's he's say Ferris and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And everyone that's against him is the villain. But the more, but you start growing up and you start looking at it from the other lens, an upper class kid, uh, completely entitled uh, bucking the system. And like you said, that rationale for him with Cameron, which is, is talked about throughout the movie. He does, he does bring it up many times that he wants he, Cameron so nervous and whatnot, but the way you heal a friend of like that of yours, you don't take someone who's completely wound up tight and take them skydiving, <laughs> you know, and that's a, basically what you, you don't take someone who's so overly medicated and uh, nervous all the time. And you take them on this adventure, so to speak, where if they get caught, he's in some real deep stuff. You know, and so it's just so I, I mean, I recognize a lot more with Cameron than I do Ferris Bueller, uh, and yeah, just there, it, it's it's funny that there's there's a I have a weird love hate relationship with this movie because the way you you sort of described it is kind of perfectly. You named him your favorite character, yet for not the reasons that people who really love this movie would name him their favorite character because you kind of hate him. So, much. <laughs> yeah. you know, and and I think that I think that there's something to that. And John Hughes might not have realized it at the time, maybe maybe he did. I mean, if he was, then he was way ahead of all of us, uh, that this, the way this character would evolve as teenagers and kids would grow up and we, we all we all become the principal, we all become genie. Yeah, you know, we we become the ones who want him to get caught. By, by the end of the movie. Uh, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's so weird. It's why it's, it's one of the reasons why I can't completely hate the movie and I will find myself watching it from time to time. But yeah, you're right that there, there is almost a hate watch factor to it in watching the way that Bueller manipulates things and manipulating for the, for what? You know, it's not like yeah. he, he's, he's like going up against the government or like is there's a good, really good cause behind it. Because at the end of the day, OK, so he, he gets Cameron to maybe stand up to his father. But at the cost of what? Destroying his car. You know, Cameron's not going to have a good night. <laughs> you know, he might have had a good day, but he is not going to have a good night. And uh, he, t- I, it should be Ferris Bueller too, where Cameron's kicked out of the house. Uh, yeah, he has to live with Ferris th- uh, from now on. So yeah, it's 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 an in- it's an interesting choice.
1: It's a, a plot that could have taken place over a weekend, and he wouldn't have had any of that those issues.
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they, they, I mean, they they stay for what two innings of of a baseball game? Like how long were they at that Cubs game? They weren't there <laughs> yeah. long. They I think they might have maybe they walked in like late in the game and they, maybe they snuck in somehow and stayed for a couple innings down the stretch. But anyway,
1: <laughs> uh, any any Hughes characters that narrowly missed your list, any that you just wanted to bring up in honorable mention style?
0: Well, like the, the Michael Keaton, Jack Butler, again, kind of reminded me of, of my dad a bit. Um, you know, mo- mo- a lot of people would, you know, th- would love to throw Ducky on this list, um, even I know that character, we all want him to succeed in some way, but I, part of me, it finds that character annoying a bit. Um, he's almost, he's almost too, I don't know. He's, he's just, he's just too, you know? <laughs> he's just too everything in that film. Um, oh gosh. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if, I mean, I, I, Claire in the breakfast club I would bring up in the same manner that you bring up Ferris Bueller, because I, I, cause I think that she's, she's a villain that people may not still realize is a villain in that movie. Sure. Because at the end of that movie, and it took me not, it's clearly not on first glance to realize this, but at the end of that movie, she manipulates everybody. She manipulates everybody at the end of the movie. She gets Brian to do her homework uh she does a makeover uh for uh uh, to ali sheedy uh to me not to help her self-esteem but it's a lot easier for claire to walk down the hallway with ali sheedy looking post makeover than pre-makeover so that's that was more for her and then she's clearly using john bender to get back at her parents
1: that's a, a new lens that I'll have to look at The Breakfast Club with next time because yeah. I've never really thought about it like that. But now that you say it, yeah, it makes sense. Watch
0: the look that Claire – because John, John it's funny that John Bender says it out loud. He says, you know, you, the only you know, idea of getting back at your parents, wouldn't I be excellent in that scenario? Claire gives him this look going, that's exactly what I've been thinking about the entire time. <laughs> it's, very, it's very femme fatale-ish. Watch it.
1: Uh, I had a couple runners up that didn't make my list. I already mentioned Watts. I mentioned Lisa from Weird Science. John Bender almost made my list. I thought he was uh, a really great character. Beethoven, the dog, almost made my list (laughs) because that's uh, really fun. And my kid loves those movies. Mm -hmm. And then one that I'm surprised didn't come up on either of our lists was Kevin McAllister from Home Alone. I'm sure that on a lot of John Hughes lists, he would be up there in the top five. But uh, yeah, I want to make sure that we... Mentioned him because he is a great character, even if he didn't make our lists.
0: Yeah, and I I like Home Alone. I know that it's one of those things that's kind of fashionable to turn against that movie because of it, it, all of its success and all that kind of thing. But I think that 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 movie is still very clever as a, as a family movie uh, and is a little dark to boot on top of it. It's a, it's, a, it's a
1: giant Looney Tunes
0: movie. Maybe not. Yeah. Don. Maybe not Joe Dante-esque, but. It's uh yeah it, it, to me it still works.
1: I like it too. I like one and two. I uh, and I have no shame in that. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit more about your podcast before you get out of here.
0: Yeah the the movie madness podcast that I've been doing for I don't know, five five six years now something like that. Um, every week on the show I used to do uh, radio here in Chicago on WGN Radio former home of the Chicago Cubs and uh, uh, so I did I did radio for over 20 years on, on that station. And every week, every week we did the movie reviews. So every, at the end of the, every weekend, uh, myself and the host, Nick DeGilio and colleague Colin Suter, uh, we would do the movie reviews, uh, every week, go back and forth. And it was a very Siskel and Ebert type style kind of thing. Uh, we cover a lot of ground, uh, Colin over the last couple years uh basically took a sabbatical and it was filled in by uh another local uh critic uh, steve brocopi both of whom are programmers for the chicago critics film festival and uh when that show got kind of unceremoniously dumped last uh labor day uh about a Month later, uh, the two of us decided to continue doing movie reviews every week. We have people asking us to to do it, so that's one of the things. Just one of many things we do on the podcast. So every week we review as a lot of new releases, streaming, theatrical now, and all kinds of stuff. So we do that every week. Uh, Sergio Mims, who I mentioned earlier, we we talk. We do uh, shows on Blu-rays, latest Blu-rays that are available. Uh, and other topics, we also do a, a, a radio show on WHPK at the University of Chicago. Uh, so we get to post some of that stuff on on the podcast as well. And other, I other have had other many other guests on over time. Talk we talk about film festivals and other different you know movie news, box office and stuff. Which I write a column every week for Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, so, so it's, it's, you know, I always, people always ask me about the movie madness, like, why don't you specialize in one particular area? And I always say it's like the dream cafe from Seinfeld. It's kind of a little big mix of everything. It doesn't really have any one particular focus. Uh, but there are, there's a little bit of consistency with the, the new release theatrical stuff and, uh, the Blu-rays and things like that, but it's just, you know, it's whatever comes up and it's coming out, uh, like, twice a week at this point that's how much content we're doing.
1: Nice Aside from movie Madness and your column on Rotten Tomatoes, where else can people find your work? I uh, think the good place to find it uh, is a website called efilmcritic.com. Uh, it's where I
0: really started uh, writing stuff online many years ago. so a lot of my old reviews can be found there but uh, I also the, the podcast is linked there. my TV appearances are linked there and I also then I write columns uh, about the film festivals. That uh, I attend now, virtually attend in in some respects. Uh, so a lot of that stuff. Uh, if you're looking for sort of like a, a mount, you know, a consolation, uh, consolidation of <laughs> a lot of the stuff that I do, uh, efilmcritic.com is probably the best place to go.
1: Very cool. So uh, go check that out. Go subscribe to the podcast and uh, follow Eric on Twitter at Eric the Movie Man. That's E R I K the Movie Man. Cool, thanks for coming on. This was a a lot of fun, and I'm glad we got to tackle some John Hughes on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Who's your favorite John Hughes character? Let me know on social media at Force5Pod on Twitter and Force5Podcast on Instagram, and your comment might just make it into the show. Also, head to Force5Podcast.com for the show request form and other things like my written reviews. And while you're there, take a second to rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. Top 5 List Bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some John Hughes films. Force 5 When we find out whose... When we finally find out whose hand the black gloves are on, it's not the greatest really... When we finally find out who the hand the fuck me when we finally find out who's wearing these black gloves it's not the greatest reason to be out killing young when we finally find out who's wearing these black gloves it's not the greatest really fuck oh my god I just can't get this fucking line right come on brain